Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have McKay Coppins, staff writer at The Atlantic, Rosie Nguyen, anchor with ABC4, and Frank Pignanelli, political commentator and lobbyist with Foxley and Pignanelli. Thank you all for being with us. An unprecedented and completely unique campaign season, and a lot has happened this week. Frank, we're gonna start with you, okay? The, the president and the first lady just announced this morning that they both tested positive for COVID-19. Implications of that for the campaigns, for the office, I mean, probably cascades in terms of the impact. Well, it's the ultimate October surprise. It has placed the country and, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, the state in the twilight zone. I mean, there's all sorts of alternate universes that can happen. But let, let's, let's take it back to the gubernatorial debate. Over half that debate's discussion was over COVID and how the state responded and what's happening with masks and things like that. That now just got supercharged because wherever you go now in terms of discussions, it's got to be what's happened to the president. The mask debate has now been impacted by what's happened to the president. But I've talked to candidates that were going door to door. I wonder how that's going to be impacted. The, the audit that came out, that is now going to be impacted because that was getting some attention. Is that highlighted now? So politics has changed once again in 2020 in the course of a split second. It absolutely did. And the ramifications we're still going to see. McKay, I'm curious from this national perspective, you, as you heard the debate, and let's break out a couple of these points from Frank. Let's talk about that mask issue and COVID-19 response. How is the president and, and his administration going to handle that question now that the results have come out? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you recall, if you watched the presidential debate, this actually came up uh, just a few days ago, right? The, the president actually kind of taunted Vice President Joe Biden uh, for wearing his mask all the time. Uh, the, the president said, I wear it when I feel like I need to wear it. Uh, th there's been reporting from the New York Times and other places, including my publication at The Atlantic, that, uh, that staffers at the White House have made a point of not wearing masks in recent weeks in deference to the president's position that it's not necessary. And so, uh, you know, there are a bunch of questions that come to mind uh, right away. You know, how many people in the White House will end up having been affected? Uh, it will, what, what will happen to the future presidential debates? You know, at the very least, the president will have to quarantine for 14 days after his symptoms stop. Right now, we're reading that he has mild symptoms. We don't know if that will change. Uh, that, that will no doubt affect how he will be able to campaign, what kind of schedule he'll be able to retain. So th this is, it has a lot of effects on a lot of different issues. That mask issue is definitely going to uh, be at the center of the immediate reaction, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosie, how's this issue playing out in Utah? Because this has been a source of, of, of great conversation, right? Should the governor issue a statewide mask mandate? Should the president do something like that? How are Utahns viewing this particular issue? Yeah, so uh, two points to my answer. The first one is we're already seeing some skepticism from Utahns on both sides of the aisle. Some think that, oh, maybe the president is just using this as an excuse to get out of the bay. On the other end, they think that because, you know, now that he's going through it himself, he's probably 
probably going to take a really personal approach to the pandemic. Um, bringing it back to the gubernatorial debate, we saw two very different approaches, right? Both from Cox and Peterson. Cox said that he liked what the state was doing right now, giving the different territories their own authority to implement whatever was appropriate for that area. But then Peterson said, if I yeah. was governor right now, there would be a mass mandate. And I think whatever comes out of what we see with President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump, as far as the recovery goes, and depending on how severe it goes, that's going to play in what we see in the weeks and months leading up to the yeah. election. That's such an interesting point. Frank, Frank let's, let's talk about how this could play. All right, so we got the mask mandate itself, you know. So the president gets COVID-19. We've had all these issues that Rosie and McKay were just talking about in terms of whether or not you should wear a mask and, you know, the approaches there. I mean, how does he play this one off? How does Donald, the president, the president. Well, the president, he's got a couple of issues he's got to deal with. What's been interesting is that if you go back and look, President Wilson contracted the flu in 1919, and there's a theory that it impacted his deliberations. He was in Paris when he got it on the Versailles Treaty and things like that. Yeah. So he's going to have to convince people that he's still in charge, he's still able to think and do things. And that, that alone, that's outside the yeah. campaign, that he's not going to be distracted by this. Secondly, He's in a category that is of high risk, but his age, his weight, things like that. So he's going to have to convince that. The third thing is, how does he do the rallies? That's his yeah. biggest campaign tactic. He's not going to be able to do the rallies yeah. because even though he mocks the masks, he he's now could endanger people. So that is going yeah. to change it. The thing that this does do, and this is what Rosie was talking about, now you can have all these conspiracy theories that are going to bound that he's going to probably prompt to push out. It, you know, was, was just yeah. set up. The other thing, though, is it also changes. We all came to this this morning to talk about the debates. That has now pretty much been shoved aside. And so, it, again, it changes everything. Yeah. So while he's going to have to figure out how does he keep on communicating with his base and with others, it's obviously going to be through Twitter, but does he also have people standing in for him, like Mike Pence and others? Yeah. Uh, McKay, talk about that, because these are really interesting points. I mean, does this put the, the following two debates into question? Do, do the conspiracy theorists start coming out as to whether or not he's capable to lead right now in this capacity? Uh, there, there are already, as you can imagine, conspiracy theories flying around social media on both the left and the right, uh, all kinds of misinformation. Uh, you know, I do think the question about the debates is, is a live one. I, I don't know how they're going to be able to follow through on the debates as planned if the president is quarantined in the White House. Um, it, it, they could do some kind of virtual debate. We'll, we'll have to see. I would argue, though, that assuming the vice presidential debate moves forward, it, it's actually taken on more importance than uh, the past VP debates, which are usually kind of low stakes affairs. There's very little evidence in the past that they move many voters. But if we're talking about a situation where the president is ill, um, you know, hopefully he recovers. It seems likely that he'll recover, although, as Frank points out, he is in a high risk category. When something like this happens, naturally, more attention goes to the vice president. He's the next in the line of succession. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, is, is also in his 70s. And so I think that a lot of voters are going to be looking at these vice presidential candidates and wondering 
uh, what they have to offer and, and probably incorporating that into their decision as they vote in November. Well, such an interesting point, Rosie. Uh, and we're so excited because this vice presidential debate happens to be right here at the University of Utah uh, this next Wednesday on the 7th. And what McKay is talking about is, is so true is there was already an, an elevated level of interest because of the two candidates, particularly as uh, Senator Harris uh, joins Mike Pence on the stage. Uh, does this elevate the importance of this vice presidential debate? In my opinion, I think because it was so hard to get takeaways from the presidential debate. There were so many people who were tuning in wanting to know where do our presidential candidates stand on the issues we care about. We didn't get much of that from the presidential debate. So with this vice presidential debate, a lot of Utahns are telling me that they're hoping to see Pence and Harris answer more of those yeah. um, uh, questions about the issues that they care about. Yeah, so that's, that's so interesting. Uh, so Frank, are we gonna see a different kind of debate? Yes, they, they know they have to be on their best behavior. <laughs> So you'll see very few, if any, interruptions. But And you'll see you have a former prosecutor, Kamala Harris, but also you have an attorney in Mike Pence, too. So they're going to be, I think, respectful of the rules, a little bit very firm. But I think it could be a very invigorated debate because these are two people who want to run for president themselves. Yeah, that's true. One, one thing, because I want to get your take, and, and McKay, you got close connections to the state of Utah as well. So I'm curious about if it's going to be different. There's this idea that there's sort of a, a Utah nice kind of way to approach these things. Uh, Frank, what we saw in the first presidential debate, is that effective with a Utah voter? No. In fact, what was interesting, and, and, and I talk about this, it's always interesting to me of Utah, Nevada, two very different states together. This was a typified by, you have the gubernatorial debate and the presidential debate, the nice debate, yeah. the gubernatorial debate. Utahns don't like that. Utahns are very tough, they're pragmatic, but they want to be, they're always nice to each other. I think a lot of Utahns were turned off, which is why you didn't see a lot of yeah. Utah politicians w embracing what happened in the debate. In, in fact, almost crickets in terms of the response from anyone yeah. I thought was interesting. McKay, please follow up on that, because you have such a, a good eye and connection to the state of Utah as well. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I was actually texting with various kind of uh, Utah friends and sources and associates uh, during the debate and afterward. And, uh, you know, almost universally what I heard was, you know, this is unwatchable. Like, I, I can't even I can't even keep watching. This is so uh, unpleasant. Right. Because you just had constant interruptions, yelling at each other, the president talking over uh, both the moderator and the vice president. There were multiple moments during that debate where all three men were, were kind of raising their voices and talking at the same time. This was not, you know, statesmen like forget Lincoln Douglas. This, you know, this wasn't even, uh, you know, in, in recent history. This was probably one of the most uh, wild, outlandish debates that we've seen. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that Utahns responded to it. I do think that uh, in uh, the vice presidential debate, we'll see. You, you recall in 2016 that the debate between Mike Pence and Tim Kaine, that vice presidential debate, played sort of a similar role. It was much more traditional, much more conventional. You know, when Trump and Clinton were on the stage together, uh, Trump, you know, would cut her off. There was one one uh, debate where he would kind of follow her around the stage. It was uh, it, it was definitely different than what we were used to seeing. The, the 2016 vice presidential debate was much more conventional. I think we'll see that this time. And I, I think Rosie's right that a lot of Utah voters uh, who didn't get much out of the first debate will be looking to Mike Pence and Kamala Harris uh, for, for their messages and their pitches. Mm -hmm.
Uh, so a couple issues I want to bring up that are close to the hearts of, of Utahns that were a center of this debate. So Rosie, one of those is election security. All right, so uh, are the polls safe? Are, is it open for manipulation? And I just want to ask you a question because we asked Utahns what they thought about that. Uh, are, do they feel like their ballots are secure? And so we, in our recent poll that we did with the Hinckley Institute of Politics, have you participated previously by mail? 78% of Utahns said they had mailed in a ballot in the past, and of those, 77% said, absolutely, I believe my vote was counted. Is this an issue that resonates with Utahns, this idea that somehow my vote's not, not going to be counted or maybe the post office is going to lose the ballot in some way. Yeah, as a reporter, um, Utahns have not really expressed a deep concern. Uh, the fact that we're going like all mail-in ballot for this November election. Um, I think that our state officials have done a good job with being transparent and answering those questions. In just the past two months, we've done a lot of stories with the post office, um, who's been transparent about you know their process. Um, we did an experiment to see like how long it would take for ballots to yeah. get sent in. And from what I'm hearing, there's no an underlying concern, a deep concern amongst Utahns with the mail-in ballot process. Uh -huh. So Frank, go ahead, because you, you advise candidates all the time. You're part of this process. You know what's interesting about your survey? Had over 70% of Utahns said they used the mail-in ballot. Actually, the number's over 90% of Utahns mailed their ballot. There's about 20% there that didn't realize they mailed it in or <laughs> dropped it off in a drop box. So I think it's the typical Utah thing here. We know we do it right. It's those crazy people on the East Coast that do it wrong. Yeah. And so I think the concern is maybe on the national election, but as always, we do things right here. So it's not a concern about local elections, but I think there's some concern against some parts of Utahns with what happens back East. Okay, McKay, you're gonna have to represent the crazy people on the East Coast, as he just said. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I was actually just about to say that you th those numbers, that survey is, is pretty impressive. You know, the fact that the numbers are so high, that the trust is so high, reflects a couple things about Utah. One is that trust in institutions in Utah is just, when you look at polls, much higher, much stronger than a lot of the rest of the country. Um, th it's also true that, you know, as others have noted, Utah has experience with mail-in voting that a lot of other states don't. And uh, you know, I interviewed actually Lieutenant Governor Cox about this uh, a couple months ago, and he kind of walked through the process, how they secure the ballots, how they make sure uh, that there isn't fraud. Uh, and and the, the difference is that in Utah, this is not a partisan issue, right? Republicans and Democrats uh, overwhelmingly support mail-in voting. They don't have a problem with it. Outside of Utah, and especially this election, it's become an extremely polarized partisan issue with the president, conservative media, and a lot of Republicans kind of waging war on the idea of mail-in voting, while Democrats are, are uh, you know, full-throatedly embracing it. And so it's really, I think, a dangerous situation, a dynamic where you have half the country ready to toss out the, uh, the results because of the medium of voting, uh, depending on what happens. And so I think in a lot of ways, this is a situation where Utah could kind of uh, be a, an example to the rest of the country that this doesn't have to be politicized, this doesn't have to be partisan. Mm -hmm. uh, w one more item that came up that I'd like to discuss because I predict that it comes up in the vice presidential debate as well. Rosie, it's, it's about the Supreme Court. Uh, a lot of efforts going into uh, nominating someone quickly on the Republican side. And historically, for, at least for Utah, I'll go back to 2016, this was a top issue for Utahns. When you said, who are you going to vote for? And how important is it for the Supreme Court pick? It was one of the 
think the factors that played in Utah's minds uh, when they were looking for more conservative candidates on the Supreme Court. Is that elevated now, uh, Utah's? Is that just as high as it was in 2016 in your interviews that you're doing? I think so. I think this is like multifold. Um, the argument, right, that we saw President Trump use is I get four years. We're only three and a half years into I get four years to nominate a pick, and, and why shouldn't I be able to do that? And then he made the argument, you know, if there was a Democratic president sitting here, they would do the exact same thing. And the other thing is, I think voters really wanted to hear from Biden. You know, is he going to pack the Supreme Court? And we didn't really get that answer from Biden. So, and it, then we got, right, kind of distracted with other things. Yeah. And so, yes, we will be looking to the vice presidential debate for a clearer answer on that. Uh -huh. uh, I want to pick up one of those threads, Frank, because this is interesting, this court packing idea. Maybe you talk about this, about what that means, because we really haven't seen any real effort on this since FDR, I right. think, was the last time we saw something like this. Is this real? Is that something that could happen? I think it gets talked about. Even though our government system is based upon Judeo, you know, the Christian and Western philosophies, there is an element of Eastern philosophy, and that's karma. <laughs> what you do comes back, and that has to be plugged into it, because you can talk about it, but if you start messing with the Supreme Court, I think what's going to happen in 19, excuse me, 2021, 2022, people are going to be exhausted. I'm not sure they're going to want to fight over Supreme Court packing. So I think it'll be talked about, but that's a big step, that's a big leap, and that'll be a big fight. And so I don't I don't think it happens, I think it's talked about. Yeah, even on the Democratic side, right? Because that's what people talk about. Uh, Senator Harris hasn't really said no, Joe Biden hasn't really said no, but the Democrats have really not embraced this idea either. I mean, that's an important point, right? Because they know that it is, that, it would, it's good, that would be a huge fight. But what's going to be interesting, and that's why kudos to you and the University for the vice presidential debate, because because uh, uh, Senator Harris is also going to be part of that committee that mm -hmm. interviews yeah, the, exactly. the, the 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 nominee. So you're going to have not only this all the stuff that's happening with the presidential elections, you're now going to have part of that campaign being played out in the Judiciary Committee. And you're going to have everyone participating in that. So part of the campaign is going to be based on what happens in the Judiciary Committee for the Senate. So another element that we haven't even talked about in about two weeks, we will be talking yeah, about. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I, one of the connections to this and why Utahns have been interested in the Supreme Court pick is as a connection with sort of the deeply held religious beliefs. And McKay, I'm, I'm curious about this. You had such a fascinating article in The Atlantic this last week about the role that religion is going to play or may play in this election. Maybe talk about that for a moment. Yeah, so, uh, you know, what I reported on was basically how the president talks about religion and religious voters in his base when he's away from the cameras and away from the crowds, when he's kind of in private talking to, to confidants and aides. And what I found was that uh, while in public he makes the case frequently that he's a champion of religious conservatives, uh, you know, says things like, my administration will never stop fighting for people of faith, that idea is certainly at the center of the the push to nominate and, and confirm uh, the Amy Coney Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court as a devout Catholic. I found that uh, in private, the president often talks about religion uh, with uh, cynicism and contempt. So I, I spoke with a number of former aides who have worked closely with, with President Trump, who said that he has mocked conservative religious leaders, uh, talked about uh, various religious groups with kind of cartoonish stereotypes, 
has even derided uh, doctrines and rights and beliefs held by conservative religious voters in his base uh, as, you know, silly or, or something to make light of or make fun of. Uh, and I thought that that juxtaposition was worth uh, reporting on and teasing out. And, uh, and you know, that, that's what I wanted to kind of establish in this piece. It's interesting, uh, Rosie, because of that particular factor right there, uh, m many suggest that's why we see so much of Mike Pence uh, coming to the state of Utah. Uh, talk about the people you're interviewing and, and, and talking to about how that issue, and McKay just talked about, plays into their engagement in this election. Right. Um, you know, uh, Utahns are very family driven, right? They hold to um, very strong, and, and we see a lot of those similar values across a lot of religions there. And so um, I definitely think that Utahns are looking for those values, but also not just the family values, but values of like loving thy neighbor, right? The community. Um, how do we make those who come here that may be a little different from us a part of our communal value? And so I think that we're seeing Utahns who, um, you know, agree on a lot of these topics and they want to hear um, from our future presidential candidates about what they're going to do to uphold those religious values. Mm -hmm. Frank. So, McKay talked about the article that he wrote, but the other article that McKay wrote a couple of years ago by Mike Pence has to also be considered because, yeah. and I talked about his, his religious background and what he went through because that is part of the equation with the religious yeah. community supporting <clears throat> The, uh, Donald Trump, because they know that there's Mike Pence there, and so that he's he's, yeah. he's the backup for it. So you, it's it, it, it's easy to talk about well when Trump says it behind the scenes, but they know they've got a backstop with Mike Pence. So he's part of that equation between the religious right and the presidency, and so it's 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 an interesting relationship. But he, even though Mike Pence oftentimes is in the background, this is one place where his role is very important to the administration. That's such a great point, M McKay. Take him in on this because a couple of years ago you wrote an article, sort of the, the definitive piece on this very issue when it comes to Mike Pence. Right. So I, I profiled Mike Pence for The Atlantic. Um, and what I was interested in is how he has sort of become an avatar for the president's relationship with the religious right. Right. Uh, and just to walk briefly through the, the vice president's background, you know, this is a guy who, for all his kind of aw shucks, modest demeanor that uh, is part of his public persona, has wanted to be president for a very long time. And in fact, I spoke to uh, his, a former fraternity brother of his when he was in college, who said that they all, they all knew he wanted to be president way back then. And so he very ambitious guy, has always had his eye on the White House. Uh, he spent some time as a conservative talk radio in Indiana, where he likened himself to a Rush Limbaugh uh, on decaf. <laughs> so yeah. kind of a kinder, gentler Rush Limbaugh. Um, and, and then he became the governor of the state eventually. And, uh, you know, my, Mike Pence was up for re-election at the time that Donald Trump uh, picked him to be on the ticket. A lot of people thought he was going to lose re-election. And so since then, uh, he has he has kind of played the role as the president's envoy to religious conservative voters. And, uh, you know, a, a big part of that has been evangelical voters, but it's also Latter-day Saint voters, right? He was dispatched to campaign in Utah in 2016. Uh, he's obviously uh, coming to the state for the vice presidential debate, and uh, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll take some time to meet with voters and meet with people in Utah as well uh, next week. So th this, is, uh, this is a guy who, Frank is totally right, he, he is kind of 
the president's offering to religious conservative voters. He's basically saying, you may not trust me. You may not think that I'm a religious guy. You may not uh, you know, think of me as a moral exemplar. But I've got a, a stalwart religious conservative as my vice president who's helping me make policy, who's helping me pick judges. And uh, he is very, a very important factor in holding together the president's national coalition. This is such an interesting point, Rosie, because often, at least historically, the vice president's role, it's not exactly like they're moving everyone there, but mostly it's, it's kind of looked at as sort of uh, a halo effect for the president, the emissary and how that, that person is received uh, by that population in, res in response to maybe some deficiencies of the person at the top of the ticket. Right, and I mean, like, you kind of need that yin to your yang. I think that's why Biden chose Kamala Harris, right? It's the yin to his yang. He can't reach a certain demographic, but now he has... Senator Kamala Harris there to kind of fill that other need for his base. And that's kind of what Trump did with Pence there. And so I do think that Pence is going to appeal, especially, I mean, he's appealing to the whole entire country with the vice presidential debate, but with it being here in Utah, I think that Utahns will have that connection um, and they're gonna be looking for that in the debate. Mm -hmm. uh, let's turn to uh, one of the debates that did happen this, this last week, because it was completely different kind of debate, Frank, the, the governor's race uh, by comparison uh, very different race. Uh, t tell us how um, how you felt like that um, that particular debate set up the the stage for the, the lieutenant governor or for Chris Peterson. Yeah, and they, and they both did a nice job. I and mean, they are there were some they were very nice, respectful. Obviously, they were they were Utahns, and so but yet there were, there were actual policy <laughs> discussions about the mask, about the funding of education, about the state's response to COVID, about economic development, and even about equalization of funding for property taxes. I mean, there were actually some yeah. meaty topics discussed, and so they set it up so that these were discussions not only for the not only for themselves but also for the the candidates down below uh, you know, both candidate both gubernatorial candidates. They should, feel, they should feel good about what happened there. Okay. Uh, so let's get into one of the issues that was very interesting because in normal years, the auditor auditor's report that just came out would have been a big deal. It's kind of in the backdrop right now. But Rosie, for just a moment, uh, the auditor's been looking at this issue for a little while in the state of Utah about how we responded. Some results from that audit. Yeah, and so the audit said that the state could have done better when it came to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think um, when you bring that, when we brought that audit up during the governor's press conference yesterday, um, of course he said, you know, this is something new. No one's ever dealt with a worldwide pandemic like that. We did the best that we could. You know, he praised his team. We did the best that we could with the information that we had, with the team that we had. Um, and he said, you know, the point of an audit is to show what we could have done better next time. And now that we know that, that's what we're gonna strive towards. Uh -huh. See, that's important. Our ancestors, bless them, from 1918, 19, did not leave us a manual. So we're very grateful to the state auditor, John Dugo, at least he's pointed out some where, where we need to do better. But I was around interacting with legislators and the governor's office in those last two weeks of March, the first couple of weeks of April. It, it, look, there were some mistakes made, but they were doing their best. They were trying to figure out how do we make this work? How do we, how do we approach it the Utah way by bringing in high tech and things like that? So I think we have to give them a little bit of leeway. If there's going to be any discussion of questions, it should be maybe with some of the vendors and things like that. Yeah. But, but, I, but, but they were doing their best in what was a, a, a tough situation. Okay. I know we're going to hear more about that one, but we have to close tonight. Thank you all for your great insight. So very helpful. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.